0: That we have. Turn in your Bible if you would, if you have it with you. Pull it up on your device because uh, we like to be in it, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Isaiah chapter nine, again, continuing to talk and discuss the issue of the coming King. I hope, perhaps, maybe even uh, over the course of your week between this week and last week, you, as you're beginning to celebrate the advent of Christ. You perhaps found yourself in some of these prophetic passages, as I recommended, just thinking upon the, the promises of God and the way in which he fulfills these promises. That there's not one of them that will be left unfulfilled in every specific way and to, to all people that he has promised things. Our God is faithful to that. And this morning... We are going to now begin to elaborate in a text of Isaiah chapter 9, this prophetic statement, these declarations of this titles that are given to this one of, of this coming king. And, and if you're thinking, well, what's going on? Perhaps you weren't here last week and you were thinking, what's going on in Isaiah? Go back and listen to last week's sermon. It helps you calibrate your mind to, to this prophetic statements that are going on there because of all that is transpiring. Time would prohibit us from being, uh, giving you an exhaustive perspective of the history and the rebellion and the all kinds of religious uh, decline that was going on in the life of Israel. And yet this is the ministry of Isaiah. And, and so he, he calls us to this particular statement. But let me start us with this. Imagine for a moment in your life that God would come to you and he would say to you, anything you want, I will grant you. You just name it. I'll give you one thing. And what would be going on in your mind at that moment? You'd probably be thinking, I better spend this well. What would I ask for? Would I ask for possessions? A super large house and it's all paid for. Would I ask for wealth? Money seems to afford a variety of different components to one's life. Would I ask for perhaps honor, that when other people would, would look upon whatever it is that, that, that you would do or would you want that accolades of men? Maybe it would be, Lord, there's these people who are always against me. Could you take them out of the picture? And that would help me. Would it be maybe perhaps Lord, let me live forever. Now for me, I don't know about you, I'm not asking for live forever because I've already got that one short up because of Jesus Christ eternally. But your mind, would it not, if you were asked and God was willing to give, it begs the question, what my choice would be a reflection of? Would it be a reflection of my greatest desires, what I believe is my greatest need or my greatest asset that I would like to accentuate? What would it be? You know, there was a man in history by the name of Solomon who was given such a choice. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, it says this, and just listen as I read. When given the choice to have anything and God willing to grant him anything that he, that he would want, Solomon chose wisdom. As the newly installed king, after the death of his father, David, and he asked for wisdom, and in verse 11 of Second Chronicles chapter one, it says this, God answered Solomon, and he says, because this was in your heart. And you have not asked for possessions, for wealth, Honor, "...or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I also will give you riches, possessions, honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like." Solomon's wisdom was so understood and and was the point of fame of Solomon's life and kingdom. So much to the degree that 1 Kings chapter 4 would say, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure uh, and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the people of the west. In 1 Kings 4 34, it says, And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And yet, do you notice this? However, with all his wisdom that was endowed from on high, it could not stay the impulse of the flesh. That Solomon's wisdom and his intellect that was far beyond anyone could ever imagine could not stay the fleshly nature of his own life that he was born with. And it ought to tell us something, that information alone is not the key. You could have wisdom from on high and use it for purposes that are not exalted before God. When we think of the status of the book of Isaiah and all the turmoil, and now Solomon's kingdom was a thing of the past. All of his wisdom that had once been heard from faraway lands, kings and queens coming to him just to hear of his wisdom. You read of the stories in the Old Testament where these mothers come to him with a child, and one, he has to determine who's, who gets the child And this incredible wisdom—you wouldn't think this had happened. Let's just cut him in half and give a piece to both. Like what? And what is his wisdom doing when the mother of the true, of the true mother says she can have him because he was drawing out, and it was an example of Solomon's, Solomon's great insight. A capacity beyond which most people could, could never imagine having. And yet in all that wisdom, used for selfish purposes, could, could leave him in a very dire predicament. The people of Israel now in the book of Isaiah, the, the Assyrian alliance with Ephraim and Israel to the north, Coming down, the, the, the pending Assyrian army, a rebellious people. And it's just interesting, this, this week I was spending just time just reading through Isaiah. And just seeing that in times of rebellion, it's remarkable that in Isaiah it marks that it was a time of great wealth and possession. They had great amounts of stuff. And yet, all the meal, meanwhile, meanwhile, while they were in exile and God was not going to be in favor with them, they were accumulating and, and storing up for themselves the anger of the Almighty God because they were rebelling against and worshiping other gods. And it is from this context that Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number, verse number six, read it, uh, follow along as I read it. For to us, A child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end and on the throne of uh, on the throne of David, and over the king, and, and over his kingdoms, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See. As we walk through this particular text and we come to this main idea, I hope that you you resonate with this reality that the counsel of the coming King will be wonderful. It will be so far beyond your mind's imagination to understand how wise is our God, Isaiah draws attention to this one who would come, recognizing the 2 Samuel chapter 7, Davidic covenant, as David was was moving closer and closer to not being the king. And he says, I will establish your throne, David, forever and ever and ever. There will be a descendant from your line that sits on this throne. Isaiah picks this call of hope up to a people who are religiously rebellious in nature, filled with possessions, filled with all kinds of thoughts, but not thoughts that were towards the Lord. It's very interesting to me that when he describes this in Isaiah 6, for this child that was given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. There was going to be in Isaiah's time, a re, he was saying, I promise you that when the king comes, there will be a political shift that is like no other that, than anyone has ever seen since the time of Solomon. And even during the time of Solomon, they had not even seen it to this extent. And what I think he's trying to help us draw out from this title of wonderful counselor, is the image of this all-wise, caring, sovereign, powerful God who is so involved with the image bearers that he has created in such a way that he leaves nothing left unturned, no promise left unkept, so that we could be in awe of him and say, wow, look at and be in wonder. Now, part of our difficulty as we think about this is even in a governmental shift, Now hopefully I can say this because you understand the reality of what he's talking about. He is talking about the best, the single most effective government that will ever exist any time on earth is a monarchy. I understand our political understanding of the way we view things. But from God's vantage point... The best, most single, appropriate, and dynamic kingdom would be a monarch who rules in righteousness and justice, de- who is, has wisdom from on high. Wisdom that would be so reflective of a Solomonic dynasty that it would, it would pale that this individual who would come, that they would look at Solomon and look at, at, at this one who was coming and go, Solomon was nothing compared to this one. I mean, he was incredible, but look at this one. It is this wisdom of the wonderful counselor that Isaiah decides to to give as as a title. And you notice he gives four titles, and we have today and three other weeks that we're going to be studying these. There are some theologians that would just would understand this idea of wonderful being its own separate entity. But as you look at the language, as I look at it, what you see is pairs of two in descriptions of this titled language. His name shall be called in a sense, if we could put a plaque above his throne, his name, one of them would be called. Here sits the wonderful counselor. Now, why counsel? Why wonderful? Because what was a king's function? A king's function in the Old Testament, if, as, as you read it, what you will come across is that kings were, were supposed to write even their own separate copy of the law. So that they themselves would be so familiar with it, as they sat on their throne, what would they do? They would judge righteously. Righteously. Different cases would come before them, and the king would make a proclamation. He would base it on the truth that he knows, and what God says is right. This is the picture of the righteous monarch, King Jesus, that will one day sit on the throne, and all people will desire to come to him and hear his wisdom from the ages upon ages of which he orchestrated so that he could be exalted among all people. This kingdom and this description of wonderful. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because as we think of elements that describe this coming monarch, this coming king, it is his wonderful counsel that really sets this title apart. And some of our struggle with even... Thinking about the idea of wonderful is honestly the way that we we come and we use language over time and we think about what is or is not wonderful. In fact, if you just look up a definition in Webster's Dictionary of the idea of what it means to to be wonderful, it's just going to be the idea of an awe-inspiring or filled with delight or pleasure or admiration or something extremely good. And we use it in contexts like this. We meet someone and we say something like, "Well, he or she, what, what a wonderful person." What a, what a wonderful individual." Or we'll go to a gathering of some sort, perhaps some Christmas party or some, th- something like that, and you, you walk home, you get back into the car and you, you look at your spouse or a friend or someone, you say, "Well, that was just a wonderful party, wasn't it?" That was nice. Or to someone who does something really good. We say, well, that would, you just did a wonderful job. I just love to see that. Well, think about the way even Christmas describes this issue of being wonderful. Perhaps... You're going to be going out and about, and you're going to be hearing different Christmas songs that happen to be playing. And here's one of them that has become a staple mark of Christmas, a song by Andy Williams back in the day called, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. You ever heard that? Kind of interesting. The lyrics, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I'm not going to sing it for you. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. Oh, it's it's the most wonderful time of the year. There's gonna be parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. Of course, we don't want that snow. And tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. The author writes of this song, oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing. Not at my house. I don't know about yours. Hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Now, of course, we can understand and even resonate with the sentiment of a song in whose in whose description is the relationships with people and the things that it causes our minds to recollect and appreciate, it cannot escape the Christian's mind and deliberate reflection at Christmas time to reflect on the most significant, wonderful reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. See, the wonder in the Bible that he's describing in the book of Isaiah, when he uses this title-type language to describe the wonderful along with the counselor, and as we think about what it means just to be wonder, to be in wonder... It is built into this word, is it not? Wonderful. It's the idea of something causing you to be full of wonder once you see it and ask yourself something like this, because this is really the the biblical reality of this word. That was so wonderfully extraordinary. It is so mysterious. It's hard for my mind to comprehend what I just heard or saw or experienced. This word wonderful is used in ways in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Listen to this. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Here's what ought to leave you in wonder in the book of Isaiah. Something extraordinary, something incomprehensible. That a God of heaven, so filled with holiness and righteousness and truth. Infinitely worth all of our worship. Infinitely worth all of our praise. And you start out with Isaiah 1 to 5. Of a people who don't know their God. Here's what ought to leave you in wonder. Why does the God of heaven and earth want anything to do with a people like that? Why does the God of heaven, who is holy and infinitely powerful, want anything to do with people like us? Who have nothing to exalt him, who have no wonderful aspects about us? but found us in our religious rebellion against him, sinning against him. And he would say to these people, in Isaiah would say, the Lord will bring and do wonderful things again with you. Wonder upon wonder. Why? Because they wanted nothing to do with him. Here's how powerful God is the God of wonders and the God of wonderful counselor uh, that he is, he draws the hearts of people who are rebellious towards him. And by the spirit of the God almighty, he draws people to himself. And when he shows you who he is and he shows you your sin, you can't help but repent of who, what, the way you've been living and what you've been doing and you say, I must worship this king, that is filled and full of wonder that he would love people like us. Do you not ask that about yourself? Why did you choose me? Why do you love me with such remarkable love? These extraordinary, wonderful things are also equated in the Bible by the use of this word wonder. In Psalms 119 and verse 129, it was not just the wonderful, incomprehensible God that we serve, but it is the fact in Psalm 119, 129, that he says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. And you get to the end of this section in the Psalm 119. And and the psalmist says this. This was just really caught my attention. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And if you can think of all the things that you may weep over, that all the things that may burden your heart during this time. And there are no doubt things that Way heavy on our souls. Is it like the psalmist who sees the wonderful testimonies of his God and he says, My tears are, my, my eyes are filled with tears at people who look at your law and they look at your word and they want nothing to do with it? This wonderful testimony that this extraordinary God would break through in Revelation to allow us through the act of inspiration for you and I to have this book. That is wonder. A God outside of sin. A God outside of the universe. A God completely untainted by anything you could ever imagine. This idea of holy, separate from sin, all together, apart from us. His revelation is true and sure and his promises will be will be kept these extraordinary wonderful things it's this word wonder that is often used in Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 when this statement is made by Moses who is like you o lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders the most remarkable, wonderful thing that we could ever lay our eyes on and still never fully understand how it happens perfectly is the mercy of Christ on the soul who is lost and a savior who's willing to take on all of that sin, the sins of the world, To provide for a people who are destitute and going to hell. Salvation. And when you see that soul turn. And you watch their lives. And you hear them say, I would have never found myself reading these wonderful testimonies of God. And yet, here I am. I wake up in the morning and I have this inner compulsion to read the Bible. I hated the Bible. People might say, And yet, now I find my inner heart compelled to do the very thing I once hated to do. And yet, here I find glory in it. Where does that come from? The spirit who now is indwelt in you. The spirit of wonder, of amazement that the God of heaven would indwell you in a way to understand and lead you and guide you to truth. Who is like this God? No one. Isaiah 25 verse one says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans from of old, faithful and sure. As Isaiah continues to reflect, this idea of wonderful was something that caused him to be full of wonder. And part of that being filled with wonder was this reality of God's counsel and wisdom. Think about it for a moment from Isaiah's standpoint. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I mean, the reality that God would want anything to do with us ought to strike your mind in Isaiah. This holy, righteous God who is going to come and not, he is going to come and be and dwell among us. You want to talk about something full of wonder? It's that the God of heaven would wrap his son in human form And through the miraculous efforts of the virgin birth, that an angel would come and deliver a message and the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary and she would conceive and bear a son whose name is Jesus. And people would look at this child and they were supposed to be filled with wonder and amazement and instead they were filled with rejection. The one extraordinary, wonderful thing of the incarnation of Jesus or the reality that we can now as believers have the mind of Christ. Do you not read Philippians 2 and still sit back in amazement and wonder that you can have the mind of Christ because of the indwelling spirit of God? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be held onto. But he took upon the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that not amazing? Is that not full of wonder? It always baffles me at some particular point every time I, for, for years and years as a pastor, that the nature of what fills us with a level of wonder at Christmas time has, has so many things that are so, so far from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In, in many ways, our culture is more fascinated with creating this character of a large man in a red suit who with, who with that kind of body type is somehow able to get down that chimney and back up again with a big bag. And they say, that's full of wonder. It is. (laughs) That you'd create a character like that that can fit in that little place. We are more fascinated so often with this picture idea of gifts and presents. And the reality is that our culture is missing and exchanging the wonder of Christ for the wonder of all of these other things in the world. Which is just accompanied and characterized by this man in the red suit. And parents all over tell their children, this is the man who brings good gifts. I don't know why you'd want to give that over to them. With that reality. Fill your children with the wonder of the incarnation fill your children with the wonder and the amazement not of this person that the culture creates but the person that God has ordained to come and save us all the king that isaiah reflects on whose counsel is so far above so wonderful it ought to set you back in amazement of what he will of what this king would come and do moms and dads are you developing that wonder of the incarnation? Is it just because I'm so consumed by this consumeristic society that we live in that it's all just about looking at it and saying, well, hey, the stock market's going good because everybody's out buying gifts and that means good news for all of us. And hey, there's presents under the tree. And when do you take a moment, and I'm not against presents. Don't hear me say that. I'm against distractions that will take the place of the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Anything, anyone that distracts us from these things. And I, I get it. As a young child, I waited to watch to see what mom and dad would wrap and put there. And I sat with four other brothers my dad would deliberately ask that one looming question from the youngest to make sure we all got it. What is Christmas about? And when he said, presents, all of us were like, you idiot. (laughs) What were you thinking? You know, that just delays everything. And now we got to get a sermon. And when your dad's a pastor, you're going to have it. But the deliberate effort that my parents took to make sure that we were thinking about the incarnation of Christ. I'm so thankful for that. They wouldn't just let us go and they wanted to give us good things because we have a God of heaven who gives good gifts. He is an incredibly benevolent God. Doesn't prohibit people from giving gifts to one another, but you better not forget the one who gives all good things. Because if you forget him, that gift means nothing. It's just another toy that you want to take the batteries out of, it's just another uh, clothing outfit that you throw away because it goes out of style or it gets too tight because of Christmas goodies, but guess what? Because he feels my pain. The reality is this wonder ought to be created because the incarnation of Jesus is such a miraculous event that only God himself could orchestrate. And when you read about it, And when you you read the Gospels about it in all of these accounts, it ought to just make you stop for a minute and go, he loves the people that he created in his image and he even would be willing to send his own son to save them. Oh, if you are here this morning and you have never embraced and accepted this wonderful message of the good news of the Gospel, today is a day that you could rejoice and repent of your sins and be welcomed into the family of God with the most wonderful, remarkable news that you could embrace and you could say, I have turned now from my sin and I've been adopted into this king's family. That could be you today. And people will stand back in amazement, don't you? As you pray for souls to be saved and as you long for them to accept Jesus Christ and then God says, Do it. And then we say things like, I didn't think he'd ever do it. He does it. Don't lose hope in this wonderful message of the gospel. He wants to save you. He wants to save people who are caught in their sin. He wants to save family members. He wants to have you be at gatherings and talk about the gospel of Jesus so that they can hear about the one who would come and save. And they themselves could say, he is wonderful that he would choose me, that he would care for me, that he would love me. This wonder that is developed in the very counsel of the Almighty. We think about this, not only is it full of wonder, but he now describes this title, the second statement of element number two. His counsel is so incomparable to that of anyone could ever imagine. Solomon had his divine Wisdom that God would have allowed, but Jesus would be the primary example. Do we live in a culture, perhaps you might say, that is looking for counsel? Do we live in a culture where people are in need of advice? Key statistics would say so. That, in fact, put out by one particular organization, described 60 million visits to primary care and 6 million visits to the ER caused by a level of mental instability alone per year. 60 million. One in five individuals often going to some level of therapeutic reality so that they can come to grips with something that is going on in their life. Statistics would bear out the reality that we are as people of this world in desperate need of the counsel of God. 40 million some Americans that would account to, to a statistic to dealing with levels of, of extremes, anxiety or depression. I remember through 2020 during COVID as I was serving as the pastor of member care and counseling and one of my primary functions was, to, was, was the, the member care of the body and watching the increase of the level of personal anguish go off the charts. Suicides raised to, to a level beyond in comprehension. Wondering if the next phone call that I would get would be a person who is so in despair of their life that they wondered if they were going to take their own life. I recognize that that can be a position someone gets themselves to. And it's heavy and it's painful. And yet the statistics bear out that the humanity is in desperate need of this wonderful counselor who is going to be given according to Isaiah as the king of kings and sit on the throne and dispense his wisdom in in amazement and wonder because it will be righteous. We have never, ever after in any point of earth's history seen an entirely perfect, righteous monarch. But there will be one day Jesus Christ, the resurrected king who sits on the throne of David. And he will dispense his wisdom to nations far and wide. People who will will beg and travel to come just so they might hear the righteous wisdom of this king who sits on the throne. What makes his counsel so incomparable It's because it's dependable. You know, when you think about a counselor, a wonderful counselor, what good would a counselor be if he couldn't give you something that is dependable, something that has roots in the Bible, something that gives you assurance, I mean, don't you long for that? If you go through some struggle or some difficulty in your life and you go to a good friend because you say, well, the Proverbs say there's wisdom in a multiplicity of counselors and you, they, you go to them and you say, I'm just so discouraged or I'm so anxious or I'm so whatever it happens to be. And they look at you and they go, I got nothing for you. You don't walk away encouraged. encourage what your soul longs for is some incomparable truth that is so dependable that if you just begin to start working through the way God wants you to think, that you can be assured that little by little by little, he will allow you to come out of this hole of this despair or this anxiety or this frustration or this circumstance. He will help you. This Counsel is so dependable that the psalmist in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11 would say this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever and the rules of the lord are true and righteous all together i have watched for years at this point as a pastor who has cared as a shepherd for different people in different places and it has broken my heart on so many occasions to hear and to listen to churches and to pastors who when people will come to them seeking the counsel of the scripture which is completely dependable for various reasons of all kinds of things of anxiety and depression and you could name all the things that we struggle with in this world and they'll say you know what we're just going to put it into the budget that we'll just send you out to a secular individual and they're going to give and they're not even thinking That whatever counsel that they give is going to become a completely different worldview. It is not Christocentric. It is not Bible orientated in in many occasions. The counsel that this king will give will be so dependable because it will be anchored to the truth of the living word. And when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, he meant it. He embodies and revelation embodies the very truth of God's word or on so many occasions where I will get someone who is coming and they'll say my my pastor or my, my 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 leader of my church told me to come over here and that would help get fixed and then send me back and I can't get the shepherd to come and spend time with the sheep I've watched it for years it aches at my soul to be a congregation of people who are marked by the dependability of the revelation of God on high, that the counsel in which we give is so rooted and grounded in the truth that our hearts will be cleansed and our lives would be renewed and the people of the world and the people in our community would say, what is with those people? And we'll say, it's, it's this truth. It changes us. It changes you. It becomes that dependable point. But it's not just dependable, it's available to everyone. I just think that the remarkable component that we have what we have written in our hands right here ought to make you full of wonder. That God would so sovereignly preserve through the multiplicity of original manuscripts so that we can have a sure translation of the word of God that we can go to and draw people to. It's available. It's so available, by the way, that in Isaiah chapter two, verse number three, this is what Isaiah says to the people. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This counsel is available to all who will listen and take it seriously. The problem we have is sin. The solution for it is a savior. This savior of Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor who has revealed in his revelation that you can be saved through repentance and faith in this son, Jesus Christ. If you've never embraced or repented of your sin, would you come find one of us? Come find someone at the chapel and just say to them, I wanna be saved, can you show me? And they'll take you to the Bible. They're not just gonna take you to their words and tell you, well, I believe this over what everyone else believes. They're gonna take you to the truth. They're gonna walk you through the Romans road and they're gonna show you how sinners can find salvation and can confess their sins and they can be saved. That could be today for you. This incomparable counsel is available to all. It's so incredibly dependent. It's so high and incomprehensible to us, isn't it? That Isaiah 40 would say something like this. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one teaches our God anything because God is infinitely wisdom. Wisdom. So much that the Apostle Paul would take that statement in Isaiah 4 and end up with Romans chapter 11, verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He takes it out of Isaiah 40 and so many other prophetic passages that says the wisdom of our God is so much greater And when Jesus the Son was incarnated in human form, in human flesh, 100% God, 100% man, that he would do remarkable things like in Mark chapter 1 when he casts out a demon, and this is what was said, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. In the region of Galilee, it is a far distant perspective that those who were living in darkness have seen the light. That's what Isaiah starts with in Isaiah 9. You may ask yourself, yeah, but he doesn't talk about everything that goes on in our culture. Can I just challenge you on the dependability and the sufficiency of Scripture for a moment? That in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, in the Sermon of the Beatitudes alone, Jesus addresses the issue of prayer, lust, divorce, mercy, anger, responsibility, revenge, loving difficult people, anxiety, judging others, motives, and behavior. And that's just in three chapters, by the way. So for us all of a sudden to say, well, he doesn't have anything to say about stuff in our world. Oh, he's got so much to say, brothers and sisters, that will comfort and help your soul through all kinds of mental anguish, which is why we're so adamant here at the chapel to make sure that our counsel is is driven by biblical truth. The truth that is sufficient, that is dependable, for every and any circumstance. And even if we get to points in our lives, which we do, where we struggle with encourage, discouragement and depression, that text like Isaiah 40 says something to us when Isaiah would say these words to a people who were far off from God. He will say this in Isaiah 40:27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My name is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? why would you say those things? He's saying, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases their strength. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. The unsearchable wisdom of the God Almighty has truth to be known about everything in your life. The world's wisdom has nothing that is even remotely comparable to the truth and authenticity, authority, dependability of the word of God. Don't think for one minute that the world has something above God. His truth is wonderful. And this counselor, who is the wonderful counsel to all people who will listen, can find hope in him. It really does just beg these last ending questions. Where do you go for counsel when you need help? And where do they take you? Is it truth-centered? Truth-driven? Is it something that you, you leave with and say, you know what? Now there's hope in that because God's word is sure. I can wait. I can be patient. With this incredible full of wisdom kind of God. Can you be told no? That he's not gonna give you something and still be okay? Can he say to you not now and maybe not for the next X number of years and you can still walk away saying, God, I love you. I, care. I, I know you love me. I know you care for me. I know there's so much about you that is bigger than whatever my circumstances in. I will trust you. We find out where our trust is when we believe we think we need something or desire something and God's answer at the moment is no. He loves you. And in his wisdom, he knows the perfect time for you on anything that you will go through or experience. We must be a place where we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. We must be a place that is marked by people not only who proclaim the truth of the living God, but really believe it all the way down to every facet of counsel that we would ever give. Because as we conclude today, Isaiah 55 says this. I'm going to close in reading this. Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This wonderful counselor loves us, and he loves us so immensely that he's given us the revelation of his son and the revelation of the word of God to anchor our lives to so that we can find hope in this wonderful counsel of the coming king. Let's pray together as we're gonna be taking communion together this morning. Worship team's going to come up. Let me pray for us. I'll make a couple of comments before we come and, and, and receive the elements. Father. You are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Lord, the Prince of Peace, your Son would embody these titles. Lord, so that we could see you more clearly. Lord, thank you for the book of Isaiah that draws our attention to the incomprehensible nature of the wisdom of God. Lord, I pray that we would anchor our souls to this and live our lives by it. We would examine ourselves with it so that we can be more like your son who perfectly embodied the wisdom of God. In your name we pray, amen.